The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, what happens when you love literature and then you spend your career on literature-adjacent topics and then, later in life, you rediscover your passion for 19th century narratives? You might start writing books, not just a book or two, but a whole flood of them. We'll talk to a man who did just that today on The History of Literature. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to November. I'm Jack Wilson. Glad to be here with you and glad you are here with me. Those ears of yours are very special to me. My voice is is beaming out there, wandering aimlessly, looking for a home and finding one in your ears and brain, I guess. That's how this works. So today we have a slightly unusual guest, I think you will find, and the origins of this episode were a little unusual too. One of the show's listeners, Jeremy, sent me an email and said, I think my father and his interests might be of interest to you. That's a paraphrase. And after reading a list of his father's titles, the books that his father has written, I agreed. Time to talk to Jeremy's father, Myron Tooman, an author extraordinaire. What interested me in going through Myron's catalog is that for a long stretch of time, his books were about other things, educational software and composition and writing and literacy, grammar and punctuation, how to think critically, Not really literature, but literature adjacent. And as I would learn, and as Myron himself will tell us soon, he had an entire career based on books like that and the teaching of them, and then he rediscovered his interest in literature, and he was off to the races. Now his books are on topics like Don Juan and his daughter, the incestuous lover in the female literary imagination, and The Stuttering Son in Literature and Psychology, Boys and Their Fathers, and Melville's Gay Father and the Knot of Philicidal Desire, on Men and Their Demons. I liked Jeremy's email, so full of admiration, and I liked the idea of a man turning to literature with a lot of ideas on his mind. So naturally, I wanted to see who Myron was and what he was all about. And I will share that conversation with you soon. But first, we have a listener email from Joseph. Subject, Emily Dickinson. Jack, a few episodes back, you assured me and your listeners that you were not keeping tabs on us. I think you were talking about travel and literature, and you said something like, I know you listeners love to travel, but then you reassured us that you weren't surveilling us. You just assumed that as lovers of literature, we were most likely lovers of travel. I breathed a giant sigh of relief. Since your reassurance, which I naively accepted as truth, I have been living carefree with the curtains drawn and the sunlight filling the rooms of my home. Jack is not watching, I would exclaim, and then I would burst into song. John Denver, take me home, country roads. But this morning, the music stopped. I pressed play on the latest HOL episode and heard your announcement that you would be starting a new series reading the poems of Emily Dickinson. I knew immediately that you had been watching and possibly even listening to my thoughts this entire time. Why even send this email? I'm sure you knew it would be coming to your inbox before I clicked compose. And there's a note that says, I end my charade here and resume my email in earnest below. Okay, so (laughs) this is Jack. Before I get to the second part of the email, I have to say the detail about singing Country Roads Take Me Home makes me laugh every time I picture it. What a song to have in your mind. And I've just heard a report from our old friend Blume, who is here to talk about Kafka and who frequently attends Oktoberfest in her hometown of Munich. She says that they are still singing Country Roads Take Me Home in the beer halls. It's a great sing-along song, especially when you're lit up with camaraderie and beer. And also, I would imagine, a good song for singing solo in your living room, reflecting on Jack Wilson not watching you. Okay, back to the email, which then in the second half takes a more earnest approach. While I don't believe you're watching me, I cannot explain how this wonderful coincidence occurred. 
Just recently, I became interested in Emily Dickinson. I've never truly delved into her poetry or given her the time she deserves. But I've been looking for ways into Dickinson, and then, boom, you offer me a hand. One Dickinson poem per episode. My literary prayers were answered. Amen. And you even gave me a guide in addition to yourself, Helen Vendler. Her book sounds like what I need as someone who struggles with poetry but really wants to, quote, get it, end quote. I just listened to a book called My Emily Dickinson by poet Susan Howe. It was beautiful, but it maybe wasn't the book for someone new to Dickinson to dive into without having read much actual Dickinson. Still, I don't regret the hours I spent listening. It inspired me to read, much like your show. In fact, the book reminded me of your show. Howe kept returning to James Fenimore Cooper's Leatherstocking Tales, and every time I thought of your Hatchet Job episode and how Twain dug <laughs> dug into Cooper. Yes, that's a good uh, literary moment. Back to the email. I might have mentioned in a previous email that some of my favorite episodes were those in which you did close readings of Shakespeare's sonnets. I'm looking forward to your and Helen's readings of Dickinson. I'll be reading along. One last thing. To help satisfy my craving for Dickinson, I listened to your episode on Emily. It was an early one. In it, you talked about your sons and how you used to read to them as babies and how different they were. I, too, have a son now. He just turned one on Sunday, and my wife and I read to him every night before bed. But now I want to try reading Madeline Lengel's A Wrinkle in Time to him. I don't know if he'll sit still for long, but I'll try. Hearing you talk about your sons made me appreciate even more the time I get to spend with mine now. Thank you, Joe. Well, Joe, thank you for this beautiful email and good luck reading to your son. I would say if I have one piece of advice for a father of a young child, it would probably be to enjoy those minutes and hours of reading aloud to your little one. If they have the patience to sit or if it's something they enjoy at bedtime, carve out the time in your day. There's just no better feeling. And feel free to read a little ahead of where you think they are, if they have the patience for it. They'll benefit from the sound of your voice. I'm sure of that. And your voice reading literature will be like a different instrument that they get to hear. They'll hear you, you know, all day long, they'll hear you saying, don't do that, and time to brush your teeth, and get down from there, and stop it. They'll hear that all day long. Imagine if you had a block of wood that you hit with a mallet all day long, and then at night, Yo-Yo Ma shows up, turns over the wood, and you see that it's not just a block of wood, it's actually a cello. And he starts to play, and you hear that this block of wood is capable of producing beautiful music. That's what your voice will be to those little ears, maybe, hopefully, and that mind will absorb all those words like a sponge. Good luck to you, and thank you for your email. And yes, we are continuing our look at Emily Dickinson's poetry. What does Ms. Dickinson have in store for us today? We look at random at Helen Vendler's selection and find it is poem 238. Okay, no birds and no bees in this one and no Bible, but we do have a few flies buzzing and death. (laughs) Of course. What was Billy Collins' line about death? I saw him give a poetry reading once, and he said something like, I'm going to read some poems today, and like most poets, my ratio will be one poem about my dog and 17 poems about death. (laughs) So here we go. Poem 238. How many times these low feet staggered, only the soldered mouth can tell. Pause here. Yes, that's soldered, as in metal heated up and fused together. Back to the poem. Try. Can you stir the awful rivet? Try. Can you lift the hasps of steel? I don't know about you, listener, but I'm a little lost. Low feet? A soldered mouth? Who's stirring what? Lifting hasps of steel or trying to? Why? Let's keep going and see if we can figure this out. Stroke the cool forehead, hot so often. Okay, I'm guessing now that this is a feverish patient, maybe one who has died, a very 19th century phenomenon. Lift, if you care, the listless hair. Now this definitely looks like a death. Handle the adamantine fingers, 
never a thimble more shall wear. Adamantine is hard, means hard and kind of shiny. So definitely we're in the world of a corpse now, I would say. Looking back at the first stanza, that seems to be a coffin, doesn't it, of some kind? We're regarding a a once hot forehead, now cool and listless hair and frozen fingers that, that once sewed and will now not sew anymore. No more thimbles to be worn. So it looks like we have a woman, I'm guessing, in some kind of coffin. I'm guessing she died of a fever. And Emily is asking us to take a look. By the way, speaking of Emily, I got a complaint from a well-meaning listener, a very kind listener, who said, why do you call her Emily? I don't remember you calling John Ashbery John. It diminishes accomplished women to call them by their first name while you give men the respect of calling them by their last name, etc., etc. It's not a new observation. It's an argument I've been hearing since the 1990s. And guess what? I agree with it. <laughs> I, I do. I don't like it when critics refer to women by their first name and men by their last name. But I should say, I generally agree with exceptions for myself. <laughs> if you say, so here's, here's why I agree. If someone says, Okay, let's say it's 2020 and someone says, okay, here are the candidates for office this year. We have Trump, Pence, Biden, and Kamala. Well, then, yes, I agree. That is problematic. You could say we have Donald, Mike, Joe, and Kamala. Or you could say we have Trump, Pence, Biden, and Harris. But to say Trump, Pence, Biden, and Kamala is a problem. But, but... But as much as I thank you for the comment and don't mean to be argumentative, I'm not going to change my practice, or at least I'm not going to change in the way that you are demanding that I should. First of all, I think maybe you haven't listened to enough shows. John Ashbery, sure. And I think I think the emailer gave a couple of other examples. Henry James was not Henry or something, although I'm pretty sure I actually have called Henry James Henry many times. I might have even called him Hank once. <laughs> The disrespect runs deep, doesn't it? Edgar Allan Poe has definitely been Edgar, and Jean-Paul Sartre has been Jean-Paul, and George Orwell has been George, and F. Scott Fitzgerald has been Scott, and you get the idea. Sometimes this is just what I do. Kafka has been Franz, and I call Emily Dickinson Dickinson lots of times. It's not one of the, it's not a, one of these things is not like the other in the way that you're suggesting, I think. I could just make it a policy. Okay, let's satisfy the critics and say, we'll call all authors, men and women by their last names, always, only develop a consistent style and stick to it. But here's the thing. I'm not writing a book. I'm not inscribing these names onto some plaque and I'm not etching them into marble. I'm not delivering a news program. And my response to this email was, hey, if this is what she's taking away from this, that only Emily Dickinson gets the first name treatment, that means I need to be calling more of these writers by their first name, women and men. Melville should be Herman more often, and Kerouac should be Jack and Homer. Well, I guess Homer can stay Homer. I don't need to start using Mr. Homer, but but maybe you see what I mean. I revere these authors and their works, but I don't want to approach them with a a single gear and that gear being reverence. I don't want to limit myself to some style that some editor would impose on me if I was unfortunate enough to have to work for somebody else. Sometimes I get carried away and Plath becomes Sylvia to me. And I think of Chaucer as Jeffrey sometimes. And if these authors don't like it, I mean, hey, look, If these people aren't my friends, then they can all go to hell. So (laughs) I'll call them whatever I want. Formal, informal. That's just, hmm. Nicknames, given names, whatever. And listeners, you should feel free to do the same. I'm respectful. I love literature. I wouldn't have done hundreds and hundreds of these episodes if I didn't love these authors and their works, but I'm not going to choke myself with some starched collar either. Not getting paid enough to wear a hair shirt. So, sorry, Will. 
Sometimes you will be the bard, and sometimes you'll be Mr. Shakespeare, and sometimes you'll be Shakespeare, and sometimes you'll be Amelia Lanyer. That's just how we're going to do it. Okay, back to the bomb. We have this woman. We're looking at her listless hair. Not No thimbles on her finger anymore. Her frozen fingers. Enter the flies. Buzz the dull flies on the chamber window. Brave shines the sun through the freckled pane. Fearless, the cobweb sw- swings from the ceiling. Indolent housewife in daisies lane. Okay, once again, the dashes make this poem more intriguing than it might otherwise be, along with some of the adjectives and adverbs. The scene here has come into focus. We are in a room, a chamber, probably a front room or a parlor, and a woman's dead body, an indolent housewife, we're told, although there's some evidence that she has not been indolent, at least not before she died, but she's been laying on some daisies now, and a fearless cobweb swings from the ceiling, and the sun shines through the freckled window pane bravely. The sun is brave, not bright or bold or warm, brave. We're all brave to be in the presence of death, regarding it, apprehending it, fathoming it. We see this anxiety now if we look back to the first stanza, the mouth fused together, soldered the awful rivets and hasps of steel. And she said, the poet says, try if you can, not because it's, it's heavy, but because your heart will be heavy. Your stomach will be turning. You'll be feeling that awe and that fear and that nervousness that we feel when in the presence of death. We are also gentle, sympathetic. We stroke the gentle forehead. The housewife who once worked so hard with a thimble on her hand, and now she cannot, and the house is beginning to show the signs. The pane is freckled from dirt, a cobweb is visible, and the pain of loss can be overpowering. I had a friend from high school die when I was abroad. I didn't hear the news until it was too late to return for the funeral, and the people who did go, who told me about this this young, beautiful boy, this distance runner in his early 20s who died unexpectedly. The people who went told me it was an incredibly hard funeral to attend and endure. Everyone was in shock. And his best friend, who had known him since kindergarten and who was kind of a tough kid, came from a very tough family, kind of a, kind of a renegade, definitely someone who did not cry easily, was sobbing and pounding the coffin with his fists, furious, unsure how to express his grief. Or maybe he was sure. Maybe that was the right way to express his grief, through anger, through, through fury at what had happened. And in this poem that we're talking about now, it's bringing oneself to stroke the forehead, lift the hair, reflect and remember and revere, hold on a few more moments, pay tribute to the deceased because we are still alive and we can pay tribute. It's our way of celebrating life, to bring ourselves to this room and to feel so much emotion in the presence of life's absence. That's poem 238. Myron Tuman is next. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, 
Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week. Whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com literature50 to get 50% off. Okay, joining me now is Myron Tuman, who has written many books of literary criticism on topics ranging from Rousseau to Roth. Last year, he came out with The Stuttering Son in Literature and Psychology, and his most recent book is The Hidden D.H. Lawrence, Unmasking the Lyrical Genius Behind Lady Chatterley's Lover. Myron Tuman, welcome to the History of Literature. Well, thank you, Jack. I'm excited to be here. So I thought it might be fun to tell people how this came about. Your son, Jeremy, is a fan of the show. Yes. And he's, a, as I said, the apple falling not too far from the tree. He is a, an English professor himself. Right. And so he reached out. And as he described you and your works, I, I found myself interested in your life story and your mid-career change and your many literary interests. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing the story straight from you. Why don't we start with your background? Where did you grow up? Okay, well, let me just, let me note this at the beginning in the Stuttering Son, in the preface, I talk about being a closet stutterer mm-hmm. my whole life. And uh, I guess I still am. We have a the current president of the United States is also a closet stutterer, who also came out as a, a broader stuttering out in the open. So I just wanted to get that out in the beginning. So that's who I am. And I think there's been a big movement in the stuttering community for a much wider acceptance Mm -hmm. of the condition. So in any case, I want to get that out. And the first question you asked, go ahead. Where did you grow up? Oh, I grew up in New Orleans. And uh, turns out my mother was born there and I just did some counting. Jeremy was born there uh, and uh, our two daughters and Jeremy's two sons. So I guess we have uh, four generations in New Orleans as well. Mm. I also, because of my age, I was born, I grew up in segregated New Orleans. And I, I was in ninth grade in 1960 when the schools were integrated. That was a major, a major moment in the, in the kind of psychology of the city. Yeah. And Norman Rockwell did a famous painting called Problem We All Live With, mm-hmm. showing Ruby Bridges walking to school. Yeah. And that was uh, in November 1960. I was in ninth grade then. Right. In any case, in reflecting on this whole history, my mother's history, and I don't know, I'm sure other people who've lived through New Orleans, so much, in theory, so much has, has should have improved with the changes, but it's, all I can say is trying to get a handle on what's happened in New Orleans and where I came from and trying to make a total judgment on all this. It gets very complicated. Well, I did uh, speak to someone recently about the writers of New Orleans in a book that he brought out. Oh, yes. yes. It seems like a, a place that writers have always been drawn to and either looking for a, a home there or looking to escape from there. But it also seems like in someone who's trying to piece together their life story and just sort of the world around them, literature is a natural place to turn. When did you start reading serious literature? Well, a lot of it had to do with college. Mm -hmm. I'll say one more thing, perhaps about my background. I don't know if we have a little bit of time. It's an important event 
that I recount in The Stuttering Son. In June of 1964, I left New Orleans to work in Sullivan County, New York, in the Catskills. Ah, uh huh. At a Jewish resort, which actually started by my paternal grandmother's family mm. in the 1930s. My father had worked there. Anyway, so I went there. It was a very liberal setting. At one time, it was, I guess, totally red in the 30s. In June of 1964, this was the exact time of the killings of James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. Mm. I arrived within days when that became public. I got there before the season started. There was only a half dozen waiters. One of the waiters was from New Rochelle, was a close family friend of Michael Schwerner. And coming from the Deep South, there was a lot of hostility, a lot of confusion as to who I was. Mm. It was a very strange moment. The kitchen staff, the wait staff were all locals. And the kitchen staff had all been brought up from Tuskegee Institute every year. Mm -hmm. It was an odd dynamic. Yeah. I could talk a little bit. If we have a couple of minutes, I'll say something that very strange happened on the first night I was there. Okay. It was preseason, very few guests. After they served dinner, one of the guests sitting at the table broke out in Figaro's great aria, a logo all factotum, in full voice. Mm. I had never heard an opera singer before in my life. The place <laughs> shook. The dishes shook. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. There was maybe only eight or ten people in the room. Later that night, I went into the social hall, and what was to be the jazz combo for the season was rehearsing by itself. There was nobody else, not one other person in there. It was a quartet. The bass player was the one African-American, young fella, tall, thin, started to sing. And a voice, and I've been a jazz fan for numbers of years, started singing. The song I remembered at the time was, there's a small hotel. It's an exquisite little Rogers and Hart gem, which I had never heard before and rarely since. And the most beautiful crooning voice I had ever heard in my life. This was a traumatic moment in some ways. Here I was in a, a near total isolated resort in a very, in Woodburn, New York. No guests. And I just heard two of the great voices of my life I had ever heard then or even since. <laughs> and there was nobody to listen. And I said, people with a voice like this, and here they are totally ignored. How can I ever have any place in the world, any impact in the world? At that moment, my stuttering reemerged. I had a terrible time that summer. Really? Clearly. Right. Yes. It turns out the opera singer was a star with the New York City Opera and a family friend of the hotel's owner. The jazz singer was singing under a pseudonym, Billy Harrington, a few years later signed a contract with RCA under his birth name of John Lucian, had a marvelous career. And uh, so these were real people, big names, just happened to be at that isolated place that one particular night. Right. Do you draw a line from to your stuttering as coming from insecurity or or feelings of self-doubt like that? Well, I think we can get into it if we have time, you know, to talk about the book of stuttering son, but you know, there's a lot of debate about stuttering. Right. It it's called the disorder of many theories. Uh-huh. And so I think I'll hold off a little okay. bit about talking about it until we, <laughs> we get to it later. Okay. I can say something about my college career. Let me say a couple of things about it at the University of Pennsylvania. First of all, let me just give you one idea. I took a course in modern drama. A fellow who was a, a student of Giraudoux, I remember we read The Mad Woman of Chaillot, but we also read Jari's King Ubu. We read Genet's The Maids, Genet's The Screams. We read Artaud's Theater and It's Double. We read Albie's Virginia Woolf. We read Peter Weiss's Marat Saad had just played on Broadway. My brother was living in New York. I was able to go into New York and see Marat Saad. All of this intense, incredibly advanced understanding of modern drama, it made me very conscious of how literature, it really is the most powerful way to see the world and to understand the world. Yeah. I also had a course in my sophomore year, in the fall of 1965, with Philip Roth, it was his first semester at Penn. 
He continued to teach at Penn, I don't know how many years, maybe another dozen years or more, traveling down from New York. He taught a, a creative writing course in the morning and a literature course in the afternoon. And I took the literature course with him, and we read a, a wonderful series of a lot of 19th century. I remember the first work was Michael Kohlhaas by von Kleist. We read Anna Karenina. We read Crime and Punishment. We read The Metamorphosis. We read The Castle. We read Genet's Feast Journal. We read The Death in Venice. We read Lolita. We read Madame Bovary. I mean, this is wow. powerful stuff. Yeah. And what I learned from Roth was to find the real author, to find the real voice, to find that one can sense. Of course, with Roth, there was always a joke. There's always something clever, but always, always also looking for the truth. You know, this was a time when a new criticism had sort of taken over English, you know, where you were supposed to not look for the author. You were mm. supposed to see the work as a kind of, you know, as an abstract work of art. Mm -hmm. Let it stand for itself. Yeah. Yes. But Roth and my whole training was always to go in and to try to find, try to find the author's desire and what's really happening there. How might that work? What did he mean by that? Let's say in Madame Bovary or something. What are you looking for? Well, here's the thing. Early on, I did some work with Leslie Stephen, Virginia Woolf's father. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a great biographer. He's the one who created the English Man of Letters series. And uh, he said at one time that he wanted to know an author at such a level that he would be able to recognize him in a crowded railway station. And that seemed ridiculous to me. What I wanted to understand, and I think what Roth wanted to understand, <laughs> you know, was the author's inner voice, what the author was trying to say through the literary work, which they would have had trouble articulating otherwise. Mm. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. But I, I want to kind of distinguish it because some people might say it's a hidden meaning or a secret truth or a secret they were afraid or ashamed to say. But is that what he meant? Or did he mean that it's it's something that is there. It's within the text. It's findable, and it's not like a you know a, a puzzle to figure it out. But it's it's not just a game. It's you know. It's a, I think I hear what you're saying, but I'm not sure these are two separate things. Let me give you an example, which I use in the Lawrence book. It's from Charlotte Bronte's great novel, Jane Eyre. Mm -hmm. Now, at the beginning of chapter nine, she's gone through this horrendous winter, based on her own experience of her own life where her two sisters died. In the novel, her closest friend dies, Helen Burns. And winter was just miserable. And at the start of chapter nine, she's talking about winter's over and spring is here. Mm. And she's trying to celebrate the coming of spring. And the trouble is, here's what she can say about spring. She can only talk about how flowers peeked out among the leaves, how snowdrops and crocuses and golden-eyed pansies on Thursdays, we had half holidays. We took walks and found still sweeter flowers opening by the wayside under the hedges. She can't really write very powerful stuff about spring. And then she says, oh, the hell with it. She says, let me tell you what winter was like. Mm. And then she describes winter, how I viewed it laid out under the iron sky of winter, the same stiffened in frost, shrouded with snow, when mist sets chill as death wandered in the impulse of east wind along those purple peaks and rolled down ing and home till they blended with the frozen fog of the beck mm. and the beck itself then a torrent turbid and curbless and she goes on with the most magnificent writing about winter and the pain of winter it's unbelievably powerful compared to the what she has to say about spring i used to tell students i said if, if you can see charlotte bronte here if you can hear her voice, how this pain means so much to her, you will know her in a way that those who lived with her didn't necessarily know. So I think I get it. So I think it's, you could read the text on its own, but knowing more about the author and what they've experienced and the experiences they were going through and what they were aiming at deepens your appreciation for what it is that you're reading. Or just the opposite. If you read the text deeply, you will see stuff about the author that you wouldn't otherwise know. Ah, it's not that right. the author is putting stuff in that they have saved up. It's that the author is coming to life. That's what we talk about Lawrence. His lyrical self, their pure self, what they are intended to be in the world 
is actually coming to flower coming to existence through the text itself. Right. You don't need to to read a biography and then go back and read the novel and say, oh, now I get this and I get this and I get this. But you can find the author in the text. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's hear more about that as we get into your books. But the thing I wanted to ask you about, you had like a uh, an alternative career. Yes. You were doing some teaching of college writing courses. You were into writing books about literacy, working with computers. And then you had a slow drift back to your first love, 19th century narratives. Where were you in life? And what do you think drove you to return to these narratives? Well, yeah, I'm, I give a brief history. Like many PhDs in the early mid 70s, the job market was very tough. Mm. When I got my PhD in 73, I wound up in 74, I wound up getting my first job at, in a private high school. And I taught there four years. I thought I was going to be a high school teacher the rest of my life for various reasons. I took a short-term position at the University of New Orleans. And of course, as a writing teacher, that's all, that's what the classes were for, for younger people. In any case, then I went to spend a year in Los Angeles at the University of Southern California to an NEH fellowship. They were retraining me into a full-time writing professor, a rhetorician. And I got my first job as a writing teacher at, at West Virginia University in 1981. And it turned out that I, for some various reasons, this is the very beginning of the computer age, I got an Osborne computer, looked like a sewing machine. And uh, I started working with the computer. I started, I was the director of what they called basic writing back then. Mm -hmm. uh, these, these were students who couldn't qualify for the regular freshman course. And, uh, and I started implementing some computer uh, projects into the writing program. And I became known as a sort of, a, a, when I met other faculty, the main thing they wanted for me was help to set up their printers. That was my big. <laughs> <laughs> Still a valuable skill. <laughs> yeah, printers are cursed. <laughs> They're just evil objects. But uh, in fact, in our English department in Morgantown, they also edited a Victorian poetry magazine. So they had two Victorian poets mm. uh, on the faculty, but we had no interaction. They didn't. I was the writing teacher. And uh, I got hired at the University of Alabama in the mid 80s. And again, as a writing teacher and started taking computer literacy and the whole question of literacy more seriously and wrote a number of books, actually wrote three books in the mid, late 80s, early 90s on computers and literacy. These are actually pretty good books. And the first one was trying to understand literacy this was a time when people were saying literacy is the, is the ability to code, to write down what you want to say and to read aloud what other people said. And, I, you know, and that's so silly because literacy has to do with creating of text and text are the ability to communicate independent of direct. You know, so it's, you know, there's a huge difference between speech and written language. So that was the basis of this first book, A Preface to Literacy. I wrote a couple of others about computers, one called Word Perfect. In any case, and uh, so this was at the University of Alabama, and I got involved with actually the, the development of computer software. I worked with a software developer with a program called Textra. I sold the program to W.W. Norton, and, and they published it. It was called Norton Textra Writer. I got a little bit of royalty, helped put my kids through college, and that, mm. was, all, and that was all through the 80s and 90s. And I was a, a computer guru and a literacy guru. And then by the mid-late 90s at the University of Alabama, they gave me some literature courses that nobody else wanted to teach. And I started drifting back, and this became the basis of the materials that I developed for this first of these literary studies called Melville's Gay Father. Mm, yeah. Did you feel like literature was filling and uh, something that was absent? I mean, was this just kind of happening to you or were you, did you find that you were drawn to literature because the rest of your life had a, a hole, so to speak, that, that literature could fill? That's a very good question. And I'm still not even sure my, as I'm drifting from project to project right now, and in fact, looking for a whole new project, you know, there's something important here. I guess it goes back to Philip Roth. It goes, this whole idea that that in these writers, when you find something, what I would call a kind of person-to-person -person connection with these writers, similar to what I talked to about Charlotte Bronte, when you feel that you can feel the writer right there coming through, you, you feel not just the, 
again, it's not the writer, you know, that people knew as Charlotte Bronte, the kind of timid, you know, and, and she was a very good daughter. She helped at church services with her father. She poured tea. When you can feel the pang of emotion she feels, the sense of rejection that she had when she went to Brussels, when you can feel the real person, that just something about it. That it's just uh, what I call a kind of lyrical moment in the writing. When you, it's just it does something to me. Yes, so uh, I guess it is fulfilling. And I yeah. said, damn, I wish I could. I if I can't write them, at least I can help other people see them. You know, right. does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll get into the actual books and the authors that you're talking about. Okay, we're back with Myron Tooman. So the book that we have on the table here is Melville's Gay Father and the Knot of Philicidal Desire on Men and Their Demons. So did this have that kind of chiming experience where you started to see Melville coming through as you were going through his works? Well, I think if I go back, I remember, I think I was going to write a book about pedophilia. Mm. It is sort of about pedophilia, but as I worked with the topic more, and it is largely, I mean, I guess the overarching construct of the book is nominally about fathers and sons. It's also more generally about older men and the beautiful boy, which is, I realized sort of, you know, even as I was writing it, it's a kind of difficult area to talk about in a decorous way. And uh, as I work with it more, the whole question of the suicide became such a big deal. We see it in the preface. I talk about the parable of the prodigal son Mm -hmm. and the traditional explanation of it as the church welcoming back its sinners. But as I try to explain, I think the key to the parable isn't the ending and isn't this kind of moral, you know, kind of draw about the church welcoming sin. But at the middle of the parable, where the father sees his son from afar and recognize him after presumably waiting for many periods, gauging and hoping how overcome with love for this boy he was. At that moment, he abandons the kind of traditional patriarchal position about teaching an errant boy, about punishing him, and instead runs toward him, falls on him and kisses him. And I ask, you know, what kind of father does that, you know? Mm but one whose deepest human affiliation, and I compare him to the, the philosophical Captain Beer, Starry Beard, mm. Billy Budd, mm-hmm. is this unconditional love for the boy. And of course, Beer is a philosophical. Beard killed Billy. But the closest path such a father can come to an unconditional love and acceptance for his own flawed self. And that's what the book is about, I guess, how so many men feel something missing in their own lives and the difficulties they have dealing with it. And of course, one outlet is pedophilic desire, but another outlet is actually suicide. One of the key works I discuss is Henry James' Turn of the Screw. The governess who is supposed to be protecting the children, once you imagine that she, in fact, may be a danger to the child, to Miles, that she may have desires for Miles, that in fact, James might be acting or living out some of his own complex psychological problems mm. through the governess. Once you realize this, seems to me the whole story starts to echo and it becomes very, very, I don't say rich with lots of um, wondrous and dangerous possibilities. I guess we can leave it at that. Yeah. It's kind of the tightening of the lid, so to speak, and the it's almost like a pressure cooker where you've got things ready to explode and then it starts coming out in ways that maybe uh, aren't intended. But the product, the natural result of having tamped down 
feelings that might have been healthy or might have been productive, and instead it turns them into something as horrible as pedophilia or filicide. If one has these desires, one creates something incredibly productive and positive and perhaps helpful for others. Right. In the turn of the screws, it's such an interesting phrase. When it first came out, of course, everyone thought it was all about ghosts. And then there was this great insight. Oh, no. You know, the governess is in love, you know, with uh, the young man who hired her. You know, so it's all about her desire for this man. Yeah. But of course, you don't have to. But you keep spinning it. If you start reading it, there's this incredible passages. Once Flora disappears, the governess's focus, she forgets all about her employer. And the focus is 100 percent on this beautiful boy. Right. So you get these multiple turns and twists. Yeah. Then we have a book, and and I'm wondering if this is just sort of a similar inquiry, but with the genders reversed, we have daughters' incestuous desire for their fathers in Don Juan and his daughter, the incestuous lover in the female literary imagination. Yes, and this also, I guess, even more troublesome, I guess I'm lucky some of these were before Twitter, before the internet, before social media, and they were fairly minor publishers, because there's something not politically correct on all of these. Yeah. <laughs> this certainly is a difficult topic dealing with incest, potential incest. And of course, over and over, my concern is with the literary imaginative experience. Of course, a lot of this gets back into Freud and the seduction theory and whether or not the women that Freud was seeing early in his career, whether in fact they were systematically abused by their fathers which Freud thought originally, and then, of course, at some point he had a great insight. You know, maybe there's something else going on here. In the preface, I talk about the Perot fairy tale, Donkey Skin, which is also about a kind of lurid father who the only beautiful woman he can find is his own daughter. It's sort of similar to the Bluebeard's tale. But as I try to argue there, the story really, the lurid father is seen only from the point of view of the daughter, and it's really the daughter's tale of escape. and and of struggle and finding herself and finding her place in the world. So all these stories, the fathers are there, but these are women's stories about women's struggles, about women's imagination, and largely about women's triumph. So that's how I tend to approach the stories throughout this book. Hmm. Right. Well, I think there's value in looking at the extremes of human behavior and, and human psychology. So it seems like exploring this through literature and how it may have played out in either archetypal stories or novels, it does have an appeal to try to understand the psychology of that to maybe help us better understand the people around us or ourselves. Oh, yes. And that's a very, I don't know how well known, Mary Shelley's novel, Matilda, which I think was not published till the late 1950s. Mm-hmm. It's a, a tale about incest. And there's also a novel by Elizabeth Inchbald called A Simple Story. And of course, there's Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, which is sort of a satiric take on the whole thing. Turns out the, the kind of evil force is a joke at the end. The evil male force is not really an evil male force after all. Yeah. I think Mary Shelley's book, I think she gave that to her father to read. And uh, he he was not very approving of it. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. You know, there's strong incest component in Frankenstein as well. Yeah. It was one of the curious things that I found when I was, we were doing some episodes on Mary Shelley that she, she gave it to her father to submit on her behalf for publication. And even though he was a, had always been sort of a champion of hers and had been very influential in her education or publishing career, he found the incest theme disgusting and detestable and he didn't give it back to her. And it's interesting that she just handed it to him and said, please help me publish this. It makes one wonder what kind of relationship they had that she didn't consider that this would offend him or lead to his suppression of it. Even Frankenstein itself, if you read The Monster, Mm. as an adolescent female looking for a father, looking for acceptance, oh my God, it, it breaks my heart when I read it. The Monster is so alone and so much wants to be accepted. Yeah. So unhappy with his or her own appearance. It's such a novel of adolescent angst. Yeah. Okay. The next one The Sensitive Son and the Feminine Ideal in Literature Writers from Rousseau to Roth. Let me talk a little about the preface. At one point, I was going to call it The Submissive Son. Mm. Mm-hmm. It deals a lot with sexual masochism. About half the work deals with Rousseau, whose confessions are such an incredibly, so open. 
he's so honest with himself, tries to be, but of course it's hard to be honest with him. The confession is just such an incredible work, so rich, so really just like male things and men in general. And he talks about, he says at one point, everything is good as leaves the hands of the author of things and everything degenerates in the hands of man. And he, he really, he, I think he's mainly talking about men who try to reshape the world, constantly reshaping the world. And he talked about the famous scene from the Iliad where Hector is bidding farewell to his son and the son is afraid of his helmet. He hasn't seen him in his helmet. Mm. Father takes the helmet off and shows it to the son. Well, in the original, in the Iliad, Homer goes on to sing Hector's praises. He's showing the boy not to be afraid. and He's basically training the boy for war. Mm. Whereas Rousseau's commentary is so different. Rousseau suggests that this is can be seen as what we now call a learning moment. And Rousseau suggests that he could have put the helmet on the ground and then have the child approach the helmet, play with the feathers. A woman helper might place it on her own head. Wow, right. What does that tell us about submissive sons? The sensitive son could all have become warriors themselves. Uh. Unlike the female nurse, they could have handled the helmet with impunity. Such, after all, is the traditional path of boys as laid out by Hector to follow in their father's footsteps. But all the sons that I study seek a different path, not just in the obvious way, because they're all were writers, but in the less obvious ways, that is my principal concern in the book, namely that each maintains a lifelong attachment to his mother. In Rousseau's case, his mother died within two or three days of childbirth. Mm. Or to a feminine ideal that his mother came to represent. Right. The writers I study are all sensitive sons for having spent a significant portion of their lives, not just under the protection of a mother, but under a mother's spell as well, hypnotized. <sighs> to some, but not all, even erotically charged by a feminine presence they first experienced through their mother. So right. that's basically what the book is about. It's, again, kind of a, I don't know, scary, big topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you swing for the fences. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, we're running a bit out of time, but I want to make sure we get to D.H. Lawrence. So let's jump there. Okay, I don't know if I could say just one word about The Stuttering Son, which came out last October. Yeah, right. Okay. This began as a study of sensitive sons and their fathers instead of sensitive sons and their mothers Mm, mm -hmm. with a single section on stuttering because stuttering sons, one kind of concept of stuttering sons historically is that they are a little too sensitive. The stuttering comes from a kind of ultra-sensitivity mm. they have to the world. Of all people, Thomas Carlyle is famous. He quipped about Henry James's father, the original Henry James Sr. He met with him, and then he wrote to Emerson that a stammering man is never a worthless one. And he noticed in Henry James Sr., or in stutterers in general, an excess of delicacy, an excess of sensibility, to the presence of one's fellow creatures. Mm. Now, I have to say, again, this is very, very controversial now. Even if stuttering, you know, where stuttering comes from, there's no, it's unbelievable. Something that has been studied so much remains in such complete mystery and confusion. So the book looks at eight or nine or 10 writers who were stutterers themselves. Mm. And the second half looks at writers who wrote about stuttering, who had other closely related issues to stuttering, including anorexia. I think it's the first book, the first study that I know of that tries to connect stuttering and and anorexia. When I do a database search, I found one article in a whole big wide world of databases that has stuttering and anorexia as keywords, which seems odd because they're both sort of adolescents. They both involve sort of delaying, growing, moving to the next stage of life. But in any case, it seems to me there's all kind of obvious connections between the two. We're kind of running out of time. Maybe I'll leave it there. We are, but I'm sort of interested now in the eight or nine authors you saw. Did you see the same pattern recurring or were the eight or nine, would you say you were finding different aspects of stuttering and the issues related to that to explore in each author? No, that's a good question. I saw basically two patterns. Mm -hmm. I mean, one is a strong father, like Somerset Mom, a, a bully like Lewis Carroll had, mm. very strong, successful father, mm-hmm. like Kafka's father. Yeah. And the other is a father who may have been strong, but who had key moment in the child's early life, like Biden's father disappeared. Oh. Biden's father had something like a nervous breakdown, but he had a financial breakdown. 
Yeah. He was very wealthy. At one point, Biden was two, three years old. His business totally collapsed and he wound up having to move back into his mother's home. My father had a nervous breakdown when I was four years old. So there seemed to be two separate patterns. Yeah. And then you see it play out in the literature. I mean, certainly in Kafka, it's easy to see. Yeah. And let me just say this. Again, to go back to anorexia and stuttering, we have a writer in Melville who in the English language has written the greatest novella about stuttering in Billy Budd and the greatest novella about anorexia in Bartleby. Mm. How is that possible? If the two are not related, how can one writer? <laughs> it's just it's uncanny, is it not? Yeah. Well, Melville, if anybody could combine multiple universes, I think it would be Melville. But it's not multiple. It's the same universe. That's what I'm suggesting. Yeah. It's just two ways of looking at the same condition because both are related to fathers. Both, both Bartleby and Billy both wind up condemned to death in one form or another because of the inability of their fathers to protect them. Yeah. Right, right. Mm. Okay, so D.H. Lawrence, the hidden D.H. Lawrence unmasking the lyrical genius behind Lady Chatterley's Lover. Yeah, I'll just say this. This started out, I wanted to get way beyond the question of trying to out Lawrence as a gay writer. Mm. Although I think once you see Lawrence as a great writer, a lot of his greatness, true greatness, is more visible. Lawrence was a deeply conflicted, difficult person, had a tremendous and difficulty coming to terms with his own psychosexual life. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And the way he dealt with it that helps us is through his writing. He can talk openly. And when he's happiest, when we're happiest, when he's trying to force himself, it's like Charlotte Bronte writing about spring. It's like it's not high school writing, but it's college creative writing in a college creative writing class. Mm-hmm. When he finds his true voice, it's like Bronte writing about winter. Mm. And it just and it just sings. And to take Lady Chatterley's love, I'll say there are 11 sexual episodes between the two of them. Eight of them are described almost exclusively from the male point of view, from Mella's point of view. Three of them are described almost exclusively from the female point of view. Eight of them are basically, let's do it. Thank you, ma'am. That was fun. They're about as brief, clumsy, awkward, unexciting as possible. The three described from the female point of view go on for pages. The most beautiful, exquisite prose imaginable. Mm. Of course, these were excised from the abridged version that was published in the 1950s in the U.S. But anyway, they're just incredibly beautiful passages of sexual feeling exclusively from a female's point of view. So something triggers Lawrence's lyrical self and other things don't. And and Lawrence is a phenomenal writer, world-class writer when his lyrical self is engaged. Mm. And of course, I think a lot of people feel this way about Lawrence, that there's an unevenness in Lawrence. And I try to direct readers to this greatness that I marvel at, that it's just takes one's breath away so beautifully composed. So that is for our listeners can seek out the book in order to explore that and see how you explore it. Well, it's not published yet. I don't have a publisher yet. Well, if we have publishers in the audience, then they'll uh, there you go. They'll be able there to contact you. Okay, so we've looked at many different books today. So instead of repeating them all, maybe I'll just point everyone toward your Amazon author page where they can all be sure. found. Norton Guides to Grammar and Punctuation, Writing Essentials, <laughs> and Don Juan and Melville and everything else we've discussed. Myron Tooman, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. It's been my pleasure. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Myron Tooman for joining me and to his son, Jeremy, for nominating his father as a potential guest. How right you were, Jeremy. Thank you for thinking of me. And my thanks to Joe for his email about Emily Dickinson and Madeline Langle. Good luck with your child raising, Joe. I wish you many good moments of literature in the future and of parenting, too. And if you will agree to send me an email now and then with an update... I will agree not to spy on you through your windows, although I'm kind of tempted to try to catch you singing a bit of John Denver to yourself in an unguarded moment. Next week, I think we're going to have Sylvia Plath and one of her predecessors, the poet known as H.D. A pair of fascinating lives there, so stay tuned. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. 
and we'll see you next time. Thank you.